we're, we're going to look today at, at Psalm 34. And the, the complication, I was trying to find something that would stand on its own, that would, that would edify, that would work. And so psalms tend to do that, most of them, not all, but most of them do stand alone. And that brought me ultimately to Psalm 34, where David's just reflecting. Uh, some point later in his life, he's reflecting on his relationship with the Lord. And so those reflections, they, they have implications for us. Right, as the Lord worked in David's life and the Lord inspired this particular psalm, we know that he, the Lord, was also thinking of us today right, as we sit here in this room. Uh, we know that right, because of 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, right, for training in righteousness. And so my, my position this morning is that David intended to help us grow uh, in our skill, right? To be more skillful as we relate to the Lord. Now, that could sound strange, right? Being skillful. Uh, but think about your closest relationships. If you think about your spouse, maybe a best friend, maybe a, a child, as you get to know them, right, you figure out the way that they tick, the relationship grows together. Right? There's something of that here in Psalm 34. And so I'd ask you just to track through the text with me uh, prayerfully. Ask the Lord to give you a yielded heart, right, to think on how does this word impact me, right? As I understand a little bit more of who the Lord is, where does that move me, right? What's my response? If you humble yourself, right, if we, if we humble ourselves in his presence, that is the blessing, right, his, his presence. That's what David is talking about. And that's why he says in verse 8, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who takes refuge in him. Right? The whole idea of refuge is that we are humbled and dependent and needy before the Lord. Right? So before we go a whole lot further, we need a little bit of a history lesson just to frame up this psalm. I think it helps us unpack it, helps us understand it. Uh, you guys remember, as a young man, uh, David gained notoriety. What, what was he known for? What was that? Yeah, he killed Goliath, murder, right? So he was out on the, not murder, that's probably not the right term, but he was in battle, and it was a very public situation where he gained notoriety uh, for his success on the battlefield that nobody else in the army of Israel was willing to step out, right? And he did, in faith, independence on the Lord. Uh, that elevated his stature in sort of the nation, certainly in the kingdom, and that eventually led to some conflict, with Saul, right? Saul was threatened by his popularity and by his success, and that led Saul at a few points to make some attempts, right, to actually try and off David, to, to try and kill David. He, he became so jealous of him. That then moves David, right? David ends up fleeing to get out of Saul's presence, and um, the, at, at one point, sort of in this whole thing, uh, David starts to get a little... I don't know, he's human, right? So on the one hand, he depended on the Lord for his battle with Goliath. He was full of faith. Uh, on another, he asked Jonathan, his best friend, he says, hey, I need you to lie to your dad to explain why I'm not at the table, right? It becomes a little bit more fleshly, a little bit more normal. And that theme we're gonna see a little bit more today is David struggles with depending on the Lord and sort of depending on his own resources, right? His own wiles, if you will. Anyway, so he flees, right? He, he is leaving. He goes to a place called Gath to get out of Saul's presence. And Gath was uh, sort of the home base, right? This is where the Philistine kingdom uh, was centered. This is where the Philistine king lived. And so the thinking, David's mind, if I go to Gath, Saul's not there, 
Right? So that's, that's sort of the plan. That's sort of the wisdom in David's mind to go to Gath. Uh, he is soon discovered in that city by servants of the king of Gath, the Philistine king. And they bring him eventually in front of the king. And David knows this is not good. I killed their biggest, strongest, baddest warrior. They're not going to like me a whole lot here in Gath. And so you, if you remember this, this is in 1 Samuel. Do you remember what he did? Right? He, he feigned madness. Right? He said he started drooling. He started scribbling. He, he was just out of his mind. The idea that maybe if they think I'm just crazy, they'll just sort of brush me off and cast me out. And that's exactly what happened. But notice, again, this is David's sort of best call. This is his thinking, right? Future king of Israel, right? Is this fitting for his dignity, right? For the office of the king, that his approach to dealing with this potential conflict is deceit, right? That was his approach. It worked, right? At a practical level, it worked. Now, if you go to read Psalm 56, which we won't today, uh, Psalm 56 is very much a, uh, a psalm of confession. Um, it implies repentance on David's part, where he becomes very clear on the fact that ultimately, I got to depend on the Lord. Right? And, and he asks these questions, what is man that he can do to me? And so Psalm 56 sort of catalogs this shift at some point in David's life where he says, I shouldn't fear men. I shouldn't depend on myself. It's really the fear of the Lord and the dependence on the Lord. That's where I need to be, right? And so that's the, that's the transition that we see in Psalm 56. Same thing here in Psalm 34. If you notice, there's a little bit of a superscription right at the beginning of the psalm, if you read it, that talks about David's encounter with the king in Gath. And as you read this psalm, it doesn't have anything to do, right? It's actually the opposite of his behavior in Gath. And so that's the picture, right? David thinking back, I've lived life on my own, in my own resources, I gotta depend on the Lord, right? And so this is sort of an older seasoned man having repented, having learned, and having changed some of his ways, right? That's the context as we begin to go through Psalm 34. So let's do it in four parts, okay? I wanna look at praise. He calls us to praise the Lord. He calls us to think on God's providence, he, th he calls us to a deeper reverence for the Lord, and then ultimately just to lean into relationship. Okay, so praise, providence, reverence, relationship. I think that's the best way to divide up this psalm. So we're going to start with praise, and those are the first three verses. And right out of the gate in Psalm 1, David commits to praising the Lord continually. I will praise the Lord at all times, and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Right, again, older man, looking back, what ought to be characteristic of me as one who has walked with the Lord is praise. 24-7, right, I ought to be at a point of praise. Now, think throughout David's life. He has a whole mixture of other psalms that he's written where he has had to confess sin. Think of Bathsheba. He's had to ask the Lord, will you deliver me? Right? There's a band of ruthless men seeking my life. He's asked the Lord to avenge his enemies and to bring justice. Right? So David has walked through a whole host of experiences, and those things are all real, right? just like we do. We've got a whole host of experiences, painful, confusing, exciting, mundane, whatever it is. But he says the thread that runs through all of that is praise. And sometimes that's hard, right? Sometimes that's hard. If we're at a, at a low point, right, if we're in pain, 
There's nothing here to say, hey, deny the pain, pretend it doesn't exist. But as we think on who the Lord is, particularly over a lifetime, we ought to be able to praise at the same point. Do you hear the maturity in that? Right? That's not Christianity 101 for most of us. Right? We don't start right out of the gates, but that's where David is calling us, right? is that praise ought to run through our lives. Right? In verse 2, uh, David broadens it, if you look at that one, and he says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. So he's praising, and he wants humble people, lowly people, afflicted people, downtrodden people, whoever it is, right, in the community of saints that's come to praise the Lord. He wants them to hear his boast. The idea is that somebody who is at the moment strong in praise, full-voiced, right, feeling the strength of their convictions and who God is, that that's encouraging at a horizontal level, right? Sometimes we're just not strong enough, right? It's hard for us to muster praise, but we hear others do it and we get kind of caught up in it. Um, I can identify with this, just a, a recent personal example. We, we were in Malawi with Mike Talley on the mission trip. Uh, it's a long trip, right? It's a, an arduous trip to get all the way to Africa, and you're kind of worn out and spent. And the first day to me, right, when we got there and sort of began to meet up with the local folks, I was disorganized. It was messy. And I found that frustrating, Right? It's like, gosh, we only have so much time here, and it's very short, and it goes quickly, and we're squandering things, right? And, and the more that I stewed on that, sort of the crankier I got, right, the critical sort of nature, right? And that, you know, critical, cranky condemnation, like, that, that's great for a mission trip, right? <laughs> um, you know, the, the Lord had to, frankly, rebuke me, correct me, so later that night, just the U.S. mission team will praise uh, we'll sing, and then we'll have a little devotion and kind of get queued up for the next day. Mike's the leader of the trip. I'm not. Mike saw the same mess that I did, right? and I heard his prayer. Right? He was full of praise for the Lord. You know, he wasn't annoyed. At least I didn't hear it, right? He was content to lift up sort of a disorganized, messy start, right? Squandering time, said, God, you're sovereign. You'll do what you want. And that's exactly what happened, right? The, the week moved forward, many people came to Christ, um, and the Lord didn't ask me, Adam, how ought we to organize this, right? And so, you know, let the humble hear and be glad. I was glad, right? Mike's prayer broke the log jail in my heart. So you should go to Africa with Mike. Right? Um, so, verse 3, right? Whether young, whether old, whether exalted, whether humble, there is a solidarity that we share as believers when we go and magnify the Lord with me. Right? Let us exalt us, exalt his name together. Right? So, corporate prayer is intended to be encouraging and strong and fun and inspiring because we hear it in each other. Right? And we know that none of us manufacture it. Right? It's, it's the spirit moving in each other, and that's intended to be a source of strength. Right? It's part of the reason that we're called to praise continually, right? wherever you are. All right, that's praise. Let's move to Providence, verses 4 through 7. Uh, here, we're going to dwell, David's going to dwell on the Lord's protection, 
right? The deliverance that God has brought over the years. Uh, thinking, again, David is an older man, reflecting back. Um, if you read the history in 1 Kings, David eventually died just from natural causes. There, there are two verses there that says he got cold, right? He had a hard time just staying warm as an older man. Uh, but he eventually just fell asleep and passed. Uh, David was in battle uh, at one point with his own son, Absalom. Saul tried to kill him. Right? The Philistines tried to kill him. He was full of intrigue and dysfunction and just all sorts of nastiness within the family. He, he knew what the risk of death was like. And in his case, the Lord preserved him to the end. Uh, he knew what it was to cry out to the Lord for protection and deliverance. Uh, there's some parallels here. I see, I, I think these are fair parallels. If you think about Jesus uh, in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, right? The storm came, it's raging. Do you remember what he was doing? Sleeping, right? He was at peace with the Lord's providence. David moved, right? He started with, I'm gonna work with David, or I'm sorry, Jonathan to have a system. We're gonna work and navigate around Saul. I'm gonna feign madness with the king. David eventually got closer to depending on the Lord. Jesus lived it, right? He was just asleep. Now, think also the night in Gethsemane. Jesus has serious, serious pain and anxiety, right? Knowing what's coming in crucifixion and in separation from the Father. And he pours out his heart to the Lord. In that case, the Lord said, no, right? This is the path for you, right? This is where we get our salvation. It was necessary for Christ and so it cost him his life in contrast to David. But there again, right, the Lord raised his own son. The Lord will deliver, he will give providence, and he will do it according to his own plan. It may have very little to do with what you or I want or think the Lord ought to do, but the Lord gives providence, he gives care, he gives deliverance, he gives protection according to his own intent, right? And that, that's the promise in Romans chapter eight, that the Lord works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? And so David now is an older man looking back and saying, gosh, I, I dodged a spear, right? The Lord didn't just bring me to the point of death for my sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, right? He arranged the murder of another man to cover his own sin, right? He sees the Lord's kindness. He's experienced his forgiveness. He's repented of self-dependence, and he says, gosh, think about the Lord's goodness. Think about how kind and how faithful, how wise God has been over the course of my life. And so meditating on the providence and the goodness and the faithfulness and the power and the wisdom of God is intended to give strength. Right? We see his character all throughout scripture. If you've walked with the Lord for some period of time, you've seen it in your own life, it could say, hi, I can see the Lord working there. It wasn't what I expected, but gosh, he's faithful. Gosh, he's good. He's had to correct me. He's called out my sin. He's moved me to repentance and confession. That's what fathers do. Right? And so as we begin to see the providence of, the God, of, of our God in the rearview mirror, right, the idea is that we begin to depend on him more when you're in the soup, right? When the current mess Comes, the current challenge, where's my next job gonna come from? I, I can't believe what my child just did. Oh, gosh, they have cancer? Right? When those things come, and we think on the providence of God and say, guess what? God is still in the business 
of providence now, right, in this situation. And that dependence is intended, right, to reflect well on him and to be ballast for us, right, wind in our sails, strength for our needs, right? And so think back on the goodness of God all throughout the scriptures and in your own life and do it when you don't feel like it, right? That's when you need it, right? That's the point. And so our believer, or I'm sorry, our union, right, a believer's union with the Lord is intended to grow us to the point that when fear comes, right, we're sustained, and then eventually, Scripture says, perfect love casts out fear, right, when that becomes a reality, right? But that's a process, frankly. Most of us don't start perfect super-Christians right out of the gate, and David's saying it took me a lifetime, but think back on the providence of God. Verse five, this is cool. Uh, We're told that those who look to the Lord are radiant, if you do the Hebrew word study on radiance, it's the idea of sunlight striking a stream or a river. And so as the water moves along, it sparkles, light jumps off of it, right? It sort of sparks. Uh, and so the idea is that as we look to the Lord, as we behold who he is, as you see his character, it causes you to give us sparks, right? To be filled with his life-giving presence, the way that light hits, moving, running, water. And so I, you know, I don't know exactly what David had in mind. I think of Moses, right? He went up on the mountain and he saw God. You remember what happened when he came down, what he had to do? Covered his face. Um, I think of Paul, right, on the road to Damascus, on the way, right, to persecute, put people in jail, maybe murder Christians, and the risen Christ just hits him right, blinds him, knocks people to the ground, right, in the radiance of of Christ. And Paul's whole life just flips, right? He becomes the apologist for Christianity after having been the persecutor of Christianity, right? And so as the glory of God hits, right, as his life hits us, radiance, right? That's the idea that as we behold the Lord, our faces, our lives are radiant, and that's why, right, we shall never be put to shame. Right? Was Moses left out on the cold? Right? Did Paul die a fool? No. No. Right? We'll never be put to shame. And so that sort of looking to the Lord, right, in holy fear, in awe, right, in desire for just more of him, right, more dependence on him, That's a saving faith, and we're gonna come back to that, but that's the sort of attitude, right? That's the sort of heart disposition that we're called to have before the Lord. And so put those things together. Think about the providence of God. You think about the nature and the beauty of his character that causes us to radiate. Like, I I see some of you smiling. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, it's strong. That's what God's character does for us, right? Just by beholding who he is, right? That's his providence. And it moves us now a little bit into reverence, not a little bit, a lot into reverence. So if we go now to verse eight, David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so he's gonna give us some instructions on our conduct and our ethics, the way that we talk, the way that we interact with people. But this idea, again, think of David's entire life, taste and see, understand a little bit more of who the Lord is. We evaluate, 
And then it becomes experiential for the believer. We begin to actually walk and talk with the Lord and to understand a little bit more of who he is. Now you understand the sweetness of Christ and what it is to be forgiven of your sin. I understand what it is to be forgiven of my sin. Right? It, it, there's a little bit of a challenge. There's an invitation and a challenge. You taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? And when you do, right, you take refuge in him. He is our first and last resort because he's good, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, I think of, uh, you remember Philip and Nathaniel, sort of on the front end of Jesus' ministry? Philip goes to Nathaniel, says, hey, guess what? Remember all the Old Testament prophecies on Messiah? Uh, they're fulfilled. I think we found him. He's over there. You remember Nathaniel's reaction? Like, okay. Where, where, where is Messiah from Nazareth? Okay. Right. And what was Philip's response? All right, you come and see. You come and see. That's this. Right. That's David's invitation. Right. That was Philip's invitation. That's our invitation. And that's what we extend to other people. Right. You come and taste and see that the Lord is good. You will be blessed if you take refuge in him. Right? That, I mean, that's a picture of salvation. Take refuge in him. Philip and Nathaniel gave their lives because they had tasted and seen who Jesus is. Right? They followed him for the rest of their days, died for the service and the cause of Christ. They gave their lives to him. Uh, David is now talking a little bit, okay, if you've tasted and seen who the Lord is, this is what it means for you, right? And this is where he's gonna share some of his specific wisdom, right, to move away from self-reliance, from some of the deception and the ideas that he had. He's moved to this place where he's now more reverent, more dependent on the Lord. And so he says that, right, in verse uh, 9 and 10, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Right, so again, the, the, it, a reverence for the Lord is fulfilling, right? It begins to settle the matter for us. And so he's no longer concerned about what Saul thinks, about what Abimelech thinks, even what Jonathan thinks, whether people are advocates, whether they're not, I'm gonna fear the Lord, I'm gonna have no lack. Right? A fear of the Lord displaces a fear of man. Right? A concern for what my opinion, is, or sorry, what my reputation is by those around me. Paul says this in the New Testament, I don't care whether you judge me or I judge myself, ultimately, it's what the Lord sees in me and judges in me. He's the one that I'm gonna fear. And when we do that, we have no lack. And so he begins to, David does, he begins to highlight, here, there are actually some practical benefits to a godly reverence that characterizes our lives. Uh, he says, those who love long life, many days, they'll see good as he begins to give this instruction. And so he's calling people, hey, pay attention. Pay attention, this is important. Uh, the first thing he talks about is speech, right? In verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Uh, you need to be truthful, which is interesting coming from David. Right? Hey, Jonathan, can you go lie to your dad? Or you remember he talks to the commander of the armies? Hey, put Uriah out on the front lines. I'd like him to die. Right? So he's open to some charges of hypocrisy here. Right? I mean, people could throw those stones, but he's understood how deceitful, how difficult, how sinful lying is. 
And so when he says, keep your lips from deceit, speak truthfully, what would those situations have been like if he had done that? So there's sort of a bittersweet element right, to David coming around to say, hey, we, we've got to speak truthfully to each other. Right? Now, speech implies relationship. Right? If I'm talking, you're listening, vice versa. So the whole idea here with a relationship, again, spouse, friends, coworkers, kids, whatever it is, the way to build godly relationships is premised on truth. And because you have a fear for the Lord and I have a fear for the Lord, I want my yes to be yes. I want my no to be no. And when I sin, my first inclination is to sort of half-truth, shade, avoid, right? So a commitment to truth, it can be vulnerable, right? It can be humbling when we have to get real with people. Hey, I was online looking at stuff I shouldn't have last night. If you need to make that confession to someone, our inclination is to say, no way. And David is turning all that around. Understand who the Lord is. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And because you care for him, right, because you want to honor him, be truthful. Speak truthfully with people. And so if you think about that over the course of a life of sort of shading the truth and always putting forward the image or the, the, the understanding that you want people to have of you. That's kind of one path, right? Or a life that's built on truthfulness. That's a second path. Right? Those are very different lives over the course of decades. Right? Keep your lips from evil. Speak truthfully. In verse 14, David moves now a little bit more into our conduct. So he's talked about speech and communication. Now he talks about conduct. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You know, in one sense, turning away from evil, right, just not committing the murder, not telling the lie, it's a little bit easier. The hard part, frankly, seeking peace, right? pursuing peace. Um, I think this is a lifelong thing, frankly, right? The godly peace. Uh, Peacemakers are not passive people, right? Just rolling over to placate other people, just avoiding conflict at all costs. You know, people use the the term peace fakers as opposed to peacemakers. The latter, right? Folks concerned with godly peace, they're fundamentally concerned with people being peacefully, rightly related with God. And because we love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we have that same sort of pursuit of godly, righteous, gospel peace with each other. And so if I care enough, firstly, because I honor the Lord, and then secondly, because I'm called to love people, and and you see brokenness of some sort, whether it's their fault, whether it's your fault, but you want right relationship with God for someone, then you step into it. Is that easy? No. No. Right? It's hard. It can be really hard, really hard, right, to go and make peace in a messy situation. Right? So this is not passivity. This is somebody who is increasingly, deeply concerned with the glory of God being manifest right, in our relationships, in our conduct, so much so, right, that they're willing to accept conflict, 
injustice, right? They're, they're, they're not firstly concerned with what am I going to get out of it? How's it going to impact me, right? That's secondary, tertiary. They are firstly concerned with the glory of God. I think this is part of the reason, if you think about the, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called children of God, right? The idea of being called a child of God is that you are owned. There is a family resemblance. You are like your dad, right? There is a blessing. There is a happiness. There is something good that comes from a life that's invested in bringing people to peace with their God and with each other. Uh, I came across a quote, a uh, pastor named, what was his first name? David, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a Welsh guy. Uh, listen to this. Uh, he is a man who's ready to humble himself, and he's ready to do anything and everything in order that the glory of God may be promoted. He so desires this that he's prepared to suffer in order to bring it to pass. Who does that sound like? Uh, he's even prepared to suffer wrong and injustice in order that peace may be produced and God's glory magnified. You see, he, he's finished with himself and his self-interest and his self-concern. He says what matters is the glory of God and the manifestation of that among men. And so that if his suffering is going to lead to that, then he'll endure it. That's peacemaking. That's peacemaking. And so that's the point here, right? That's David's point, is that a holy fear of the Lord. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. A holy reverence, right? A holy fear of God will drive us to work for God-centered peace with people, right? Their salvation, our fellowship. Have to be relentless. Right? And for that to be the case, you have to continue to depend on the Lord, to draw near to the Lord, right? Because we, we just peter out. We run out of that kind of strength, that sort of resolve. Just like the first time somebody says something ugly to us on social media, I'm out, right? Somebody says something mean to you, like, well, heck with you. Right? We're so quick to take up our own offense. But as our thinking begins to change because we understand and honor and fear and revere the Lord, then we're equipped, Right, positioned through his spirit to enter in and to fight for peace. That brings us now to the kind of this fourth section. We, we've looked at praising the Lord. Um, what was my second one? I already fought, forgot it. Providence. Providence. There we go. Um, what did we just talk about? Reverence for the Lord. I'm not doing a very good job on my recap. Uh, but now we're going to move into relationship with the Lord. And so that's, that's the thrust of this teaching now in verses 15 to 22, is David saying, hey, this is the way that you need to relate to the Lord. This is what this relationship is about. And he wants us to understand better than we do, deeper than we practice, more of the Lord's character. And then because we understand that, how we're called to engage, and how we're called to relate. It's interesting to me, David builds this part of his uh, psalm uh, which, by the way, was an acrostic, which is kind of interesting. Can you imagine trying to build an acrostic like this by yourself without the Holy Spirit inspiring the word? But anyway, so he frames this discussion in how righteous people and wicked people relate to the Lord, right? We're going to be in one or two, one of those two buckets. And that brings to mind the question, pretty quickly, well, who's righteous? Who's righteous? 
Right? Particularly in our culture, that's sort of an offensive notion that somebody's righteous and somebody else isn't. Uh, and so we need to understand from a biblical standpoint, what does it mean in this context to be a righteous person? So you need to go back to Psalm 1. Uh, some of you may know, many of you may know, Psalm 1 is intended to be a gateway to the rest of the book. Right? The next 149 psalms are all intended to be read and understood based on the principles that are laid out in Psalm 1. And so there, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Right? We're shunning wickedness. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it, he meditates day and night. Right? So there's a choice where you go to invest yourself and your time in the counsel of wicked, or do you delight yourself in God's law? And the word here, law, is intended to be general. This is not necessarily limited to the Torah or the first part of the Bible. The idea is all of God's revelation, all of God's law, all of his disclosure of himself to us, that's what we delight ourselves in. And the whole picture is God gives it, and we receive it. That's what makes a man righteous. God's law comes, we receive it, and that's the image, the rest of Psalm 1, right? He's like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. So the law is like the water that nourishes the root, causes the tree to grow. So you have shade, you have fruit, you have blessing to people around because the water is supplied for the nourishment and the maturity of the godly individual. Same thing here. Same thing here. Now, how many of us can do that on our own? Zero. Right? Psalm 53 says there is no one righteous among themselves. No, not one. And that may sound familiar. It's in Romans, and it's because Paul is quoting Psalm 53. There is no one righteous, not even one. Right? It says the Lord looks down to see, is there any who seek the Lord? And the answer is no. And so the Lord gives himself. He gives his law. And those of us in need, all of us, who then come to the point of repentance, some of us, we're made righteous, right? God gives himself and his word to create the righteous. So with that kind of distinction in mind, people that receive and depend on what the Lord provides and everybody else, I'm gonna receive and depend and do whatever I want using some other resources, whether it's my ingenuity, my friends, my connections, my money, whatever it is. If I am not receiving and depending on the Lord, then by definition, I am not righteous. That's the distinction here, okay? So he goes on and he begins to explain what the relationship is between the Lord and the righteous. In verse 15, he says, the Lord is attentive to the righteous and that he listens to us. He says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Now notice, they have troubles. They have them. David had them. Jesus had them. All the apostles had them. You and I have them. But they're... There is deliverance, right? The Lord gives his presence. That's fundamentally deliverance, right? Being united to the Lord through his spirit, united to Christ. And then ultimately, right, when the end comes, we'll be delivered into his presence. But that's all in his timing, right? So he hears us, he delivers us. Uh, it says that the Lord draws near to the brokenhearted and he saves the Christian spirit. I think there's another parallel to Jesus' words. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be, what? Comforted. So if you're brokenhearted, right, if you are mourning, particularly over your own sin, 
right, the brokenness in your life, around your family, and your friends, because you know that they are not, maybe you're not in right relation with God, there is comfort, right? There is righteousness supplied for the one who confesses and repents. Verses 19 and 20 says, the righteous will have many affliction, but the Lord delivers them and keeps all his bones, which is kind of interesting. Uh, the idea is preservation. Yeah, you're, you're gonna have some real conflict. It's gonna hurt. But the Lord preserves us. And I, I, don't, I don't know, this is just my observation, I don't know if there's any linkage here uh, to the New Testament, but you remember it was customary to break the legs of folks who were on the cross but haven't died. And that didn't happen to Jesus because he chose to give up his spirit. It was on his terms that he laid his life down. So it's just an interesting parallel that he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And the language here in this particular verse is singular. So if you don't agree with me, that's fine. I just find that kind of interesting. Right. And then in verse 22, the Lord rescues and redeems his servants, right? Depending on which translation you have. So here we are just in a mess and we're just waiting for rescue. That's the nature of our relationship with the Lord. That's what it means to be righteous. Because I'm here and I got nothing and I need help. And the Lord says, yes, you do, right? Yes, you do. And so what, what, we want to, what we want to see, right, what David wants us to see is that righteous people, those are the folks that receive the word of God and they depend entirely on it. And that's another phrase that Jesus used of himself. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. And he is the very revelation of God to us. Right, so as we receive the righteousness and the revelation of God, then we depend on him, and he gives us more of himself. We hunger and thirst for his righteousness, and Jesus says, guess what? That person will be filled. Right, it's entirely consistent with the whole nature of salvation. I need him to make me righteous. I need to be with him because he gives me life. Right, he's the one that raises dead people and gives radiance, right? changes us. Now for everybody else, right? If you think about Psalm 1, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. They have none of that, none of that. In the context of Psalm 34, David says in verse 16, the Lord sets himself against them. They will be blotted out from the earth. Or another translation, he cuts off their memory from the earth. God will judge and destroy sinners. Those who see and understand that you have a need and they hear the offer of God, I'll make you righteous if you will confess your sin and humble yourself and ask for my mercy. And those who say, nope, I've got my own plan, my own resources, not today, you know, you've got sort of some interesting teachings in Christianity, and I'm kind of on board with some, but not others. By definition, that is wicked, because they're not depending on the Lord's righteousness. And therefore, the Lord says, I will destroy, right, for that sort of rejection. Verse 21, in case you missed it in 16, evil will slay the wicked, and they will be condemned. Right, just so stark, it's so stark, it's hard to miss. 
So when I step back, right, it just, it seems clear to me that David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has sort of all of the seeds of the gospel in this psalm, because nobody is righteous in themselves. The wicked, they, those are the folks that persist in independence, because they do not fear the Lord. The righteous depend utterly on the Lord. The fear of the Lord redeems their speech. It informs their conduct. It turns them into peacemakers, people who care more about the glory of God than they do about themselves. Right? Doesn't, doesn't that just sort of whisper or scream, Jesus? I'm not sure which word is, is the right one there. Right? But the gospel is there, right? It's there. And so anyway, I think of Jesus and just a couple of, Final thoughts here. Uh, remember his words, one case to the Pharisees? And he says, well, before Abraham was, I am. And the, the phrase that he uses there of himself, I am, it's the same thing, it's the same term, the same word that God Almighty used of himself to introduce himself to Moses. Moses said, who should I tell him has sent me? I am. Right? The Lord doesn't introduce himself in relation to anything else. He is the one that's independent, and he says, guess what? I am. That's my name. That's my identity. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, right, he's making a very clear claim to divinity. And if you look in this psalm, Psalm 34, if you guys look, the word Lord, it's, it's all uh, capitals, L-O-R-D, it's all capitals. That's the English depiction, or the English transliteration of Yahweh. And Yahweh, those are the four syllables for I am. And so you might be thinking, okay, all right. <laughs> this is like conspiracy theory time. No, it's for real, right? <laughs> if you go to the, the night of uh, Jesus' trial at the Sanhedrin, this is in Mark 14. They brought a lot of different witnesses making different accusations. Nothing agreed. Nothing would stick. And they're getting frustrated because of this. And so what do they do? What do they do, right? The chief priest asked Jesus this question, are you the Messiah? the son of the blessed one, straight up, to which Jesus replied, I am, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And what was that man's response? Did he say, forgive me? Did he kneel? Did he ask for forgiveness? And he said, well, we've heard his blasphemy. It's time for him to be convicted, crucified. Right, such a clear and stark setting right, where God made man, takes on flesh, says, I am, and guess what? You're going to see me coming in power. That man is on notice. And his response was, absolutely not. This is blasphemous. That's, that's damnable. That's damnable. Right? As stark as that is, that's the heart of this psalm. Right? That's the point I think we need to leave with here. If you have never humbled yourself, if you have never confessed your sin straight up, you are a righteous God and I am a sinner and agreed with the Lord on that and then asked for his forgiveness and his mercy, friend, you're at risk. God's word says you will be condemned. At the same time, right, God holds out forgiveness through the blood of his son Right, to supply the righteousness that you lack, that I lack, right, to make you a child of God, right? to dwell with him in this relationship so that you yearn to praise 
the Lord, right? To think on his providence. To grow in your reverence, you start to care a little bit more today than you used to. And to depend on him, right? To take refuge in him. Scripture says, Psalm 34 says, none of us who trust in him will be condemned. If you reject him and depend on yourself, you will, right? That's the choice. So if you have never made that decision, uh, grab an elder, grab a church member, grab me. We would be happy. It would be our pleasure to walk through the, the fullness of the gospel with you. If you have, right, if you are walking with the Lord, depend on him. Right? Ask yourself these questions. When's the last time I reflected on his providence? When's the last time I sort of shaded a conversation with a lie? What do I need to make right? Who do I need to go and make gospel peace with? Right, there's all sorts of implications for us as the fear of the Lord just changes us. Right? Let's pray. Father, your word is so good because you are. Lord, you've given us your word, you've given us your son, you've given us your spirit, all that we need for life and godliness. So Lord, I pray that our hearts would be humble, penitent before you, Lord, just the way that we come to you to ask for salvation, that's how we live out each day. May we be humble and penitent before you now, and yet safe and secure as we take refuge in you, as we depend on you. Lord, you are our highest and best thought. You're our first and last resort. And we give you praise and we give you glory. We ask for you, Lord, to glorify yourself in our midst, right, in this body now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.